0: rising powers, the twisting fates, and the storm of shadows on the horizon. I am your announcer, the literal melting pot of friendship that seeps into your homes every week through your ether box. Transport in Malfoe this week has been taken to new heights with the refurbishment of Dockmast 1. Dockmast 1 is the premier aircast station, allowing goods to be transported not by dirt road but by the clean, clear highways of the sky. Doubters have queried how a wire could hold a metal box aloft in the air, but a representative from Dockmaster 1 has said, After our refurbishments, security and the material supporting our aircar system are top of the line. Why, I don't think even a covert stealth mission could bust our aircars. Promising words there from the authorities have issues with the story this week. I'll play it anyway, it's my lot in life, press the button, play the yarn, and so on and so on. It's just, it's about Prince Journalism. My heated feelings on those, those dinosaurs have been recorded previously. I'd rather roll out a red carpet, take a long walk along it into a lake than associate myself with that dying form of Prince. But, here we are. How about a story featuring a heroic etherbox announcer instead? Get your requests in for this by attaching them to turnips and wrapping them quietly against the door to the beachside broadcast studios. This is deadline yada yada yada.
1: deadline. The side door of the old brewery swung open with a bang, and there stood Seamus. He wore a tweed suit as green as his eyes, and held a leather satchel stained black as the night behind him. He threw Molly a smile, full of roguish charm and come-hither devilry. Fog swept about him as he entered, but either the fog or the smile was so cold Molly could feel the chill in her dead bones. Tell you what, Molly dearest, Seamus said, his eyes twinkling as he stalked across the flagstone floor. The evening seems to have gotten away from me. He planted his leather case on the table next to Molly, with a thump that rattled the rows of bottles and distilling equipment and flourished forth a set of bloody steel forceps. He frowned, waving the forceps to and fro. I can't say as I remember using these. He tossed them on the table and plucked a slender metal tube with scissored finger grips from the bag. He chuckled. Now then. When he sold me this, Sober George told me it was. He contorted his face and put on a posh accent. Minimally invasive, he laughed again, tossing it back into his bag. Blood spluttered from the tip as it disappeared. Then you're using it wrong, I told him. How we laughed. You've met Sober George, right? Molly realized Seamus wanted something complimentary. He swears with great imagination, she offered, and that seemed to be enough. Seamus paused for a second, an odd blank look coming over his face. It passed, and he turned to Molly and grinned. Wouldn't go near Mrs. Choke's guesthouse on Arbol Street for the next few days, Molly, me love. Between you and me, the landlady's lost her charm. He shrugged his city coat off and threw it at her. Bit of claret spilled. Get some loyon, on, see if it'll come out. Now, how's me brew getting on? Molly handed off the coat to one of the bells. He shuffled away behind the old sherry barrels. Then she held out the papers she was carrying. Seamus, who was already toying around with the beakers on his table, took a few minutes to notice. Mayor, he exclaimed. Oh, no, not again. Not after the last time. I don't care if this one's my biggest admirer in all of Malithal, unless she's included a portrait. Mademoiselle Vestige delivered these, Molly interrupted. Not wanting to stand through another retelling of that sorry incident when Seamus had learned what it meant, have deluded ingenues falling in love with him by dark reputation and wanting to meet. He'd been so disappointed when the lady in question, a Miss Abilene shrivel of number twelve clove quarter, had not quite lived up to her self-description, by several years and many, many more pounds, that he hadn't killed anyone for days. Molly placed the leaflets on the table, avoiding the spills that were already smoking gently. Mademoiselle Vestige! Seamus bounded over to Molly's side of the table and snapped them up. He rifled through them, discarding several with loud snorts of derision, and then fanned three out on the table with a cry of satisfaction. Each leaflet contained an address at the top, a lithographic image of a building beneath, and a description, written in the mamzelle's flowing, artful script. Molly had no idea what Seamus would want with a real estate agent, but something about one of the ones he'd discarded caught her attention. She picked it up while Seamus blathered on. Something was familiar about this building— she placed it on the table, on top of the other three. This one. Seamus tried to brush the particulars away, but Molly's pale white finger pinned it to the oak. This one, she repeated. Seamus straightened up, glanced at the gorgon's tear hanging around her neck, and then back up at Molly. He licked his lips. You sure? Molly just stared back. Another grin split Seamus' face. Of Course you are, Molly, dearest. What would I do without you? Get me on way like as not, he answered himself in a stage whisper before doubling up in laughter. You meet with Mademoiselle Vestige. Be nice to her. She's got angles, that one. And she'll show you round that dump you've picked. Let me know what you find. And I've only just remembered what I used those forceps for. He fished around in the top pocket of his silk shirt and dug out an eyeball, dangling between finger and thumb by its own bloody optic nerve. The eye twitched and looked at Molly. "'the irising pupil somehow conveying "'a look of utter bewilderment and terror. "'Take Mrs. Choke with you. "'Show her round. Better get a good eyeful, eh, Molly, love? "'Oh, I'm not just any real estate agent, Miss Squidpidge, "'as you're not just any shuffling mindless undead, n'est "'If it's not haunted, I don't touch it.' "'Mamselle Vestige was a lot younger, "'and her French accent a lot less pronounced "'than Molly had expected. "'She wore a lot more make-up, and in a much darker shade than Molly would have been comfortable with back when she'd been bothered about things like being comfortable. The woman's hair was as straight and black as an ebony waterfall, and she dressed in dark purple silks that had an Arabian air about them. Although they covered her from neck to toe, they seemed to be always promising to give a glimpse of scandalous flesh. But, due to either remarkable dressmaking or impossible luck, the promise remained just that. Molly was also fairly certain there was more than one weapon hidden in those eastern folds. But she had a good feeling about Manziel Vestige. She hadn't batted any of her heavily blackened eyelashes when Molly had loomed out of the night fog pale as a sheet. Her black hair piled atop her head like a thunderstorm, with dried blood crusted all down her chin and in front of her yellow crinoline dress. She had also only offered a courteous Mr. Toomers, I presume, when Molly had introduced the reanimated head in question to see what reaction it evoked. On her way to meet the not-just-any-real-estate agent, Molly had grown tired of Philip Toomer's protestations at her carrying him by the hair, like a child swinging a damn sack of marbles by her side, and had decided to teach him a lesson. One terrified mother later, whom Molly had allowed to run away screaming with her infant safe in her arms, and Molly had arrived for her meeting with Philip Toomer's apoplectic head being pushed in a wrought-iron baby carriage. The pink woolen bonnet with the rabbit ears, Molly decided, had been the crowning touch. As for the disembodied Philip Tumors himself, he'd stopped sulking, and Molly could swear he was rather taken with the dark silk swishes and long black fingernails of Mamsel Vestige. My clients are few and select, Miss Squidpidge, as are the properties I handle. Shermer sent word that as part of his new brewing endeavours... No, don't tell me, Mamsel Vestige held up her hand, although Molly hadn't said a word. I only ever drink whiskey that's been shipped from Scotchland unopened. So whatever Seamus is up to is none of my business. And I always mind my own business, which brings us here. She waved at the imposing brick edifice across the foggy street. And although I have skipped the part where I tell you what Seamus wanted with this place, I have a feeling it is you that wants to see it and not him. Footsteps sounded, bare feet on cobbles, and an urchin dashed out of the cold coiling mist. "'carrying a leather-wrapped parcel in her hand. "'Dressed in rags, she was nothing but skin and bone. "'A length of dirty sackcloth was tied over her lower face, "'but from above it burned black, bitter eyes "'that looked at Molly without fear. "'The fingers that held the parcel were strangely long, "'and their tips seemed to disappear into the fog. "'Mamselle Vestige unwrapped the parcel, "'read the letter within, "'and with a wave of her hand the words on it vanished. "'She bent close to the girl.' "'whispering words in a language Molly did not know. "'And when Mademoiselle Vestige straightened up, the girl was gone. "'One of my crooligans, well, I say mine, "'they keep an eye on things for me. "'They don't usually show themselves when I'm with others, "'but I think she quite liked you. "'It seems Malifaux was a busy place tonight,' she added with a wink. "'She tells me there's a former lodgings on Arbel Street "'I might like to add to my books.' "'Molly felt Mrs. Choke squirm in her pocket.' and she gave her an admonitory slap. The fog cleared slightly, and gave her a better look at the building. Near the edge of downtown, this was not prime real estate, and the building was worn and tired-looking. Clumps of grey vegetation sprouted from windows and cracks in the brickwork, and thick, dark stains flowed from leaks and gutters. Grime coated the broken glass in the many windows. She knew this building, and started across the empty cobbles toward it. "'Philip Toom was bouncing in the pram. "'You won't be going in alone, Miss Squidpidge.' "'The lone working gas lamp on the street guttered almost on command, "'and Molly saw two people standing beneath it, "'next to a shuttered and barred door. "'She aimed Philip at them and applied the brakes "'just outside the cone of gaslight. "'Mamselle Vestige swept past in a tease of perfume and silk, "'a lit cigarette waving in her hand like a firefly on a wand "'as she made rapid-fire introductions.' She had her business face on now, Molly saw. Miss Squidpidge, this is Mr. Clarifester Drove, an independent mortuarial consultant and the creator of Drove's Spirit Cabinet, which can be seen weekly at the Star Theatre. And this is Miss Divesta Honeychild of Mountbank Honeychilds. She is an authority on the Neverborn. The Manifestata, the diminutive Divesta Honeychild corrected with a frown. The term Neverborn is not only incorrect but offensive to those poor creatures. The writings of dubious peak on the subject in 1828 are are no longer as widely read as they should not once have been, interrupted Mademoiselle Vestige. And this is Miss Squidpidge, former reporter for the Malifaux Daily Record, and now greatly skewing the average intelligence of the ranks of the undead, and these are the earthly remains of Philip Toomers. The hat is not his own. Clarifester Drove was taciturn, fat, and sweating in the cold air, with a humorless face that looked like a boiled potato. Strapped to his back in a whaling harness was a whining contraption of brass tubes, gleaming condensers, and naked electrical connections whose end product seemed to be a brass apparatus attached to a wide-bore pistol holstered on his left leg. He didn't even look at Molly, but kept staring up at the building through an assortment of lenses mounted on spidery brass rods. With her tiny figure hidden under a full-length black fog coat, her hands clasping a small beaded bag, and her hair in a bun so tight it pulled the corners of her eyes up in a look of perpetual alarm. Divester Honeychild looked like every stern choir mistress Molly had known growing up, although considerably smaller. She could actually see the moment where Miss Honeychild dismissed Molly from her mind as being not worth thinking about, which only reinforced the memory. "'It's an open viewing tonight,' Mademoiselle Vestige carried on, "'but I won't be accompanying you.' "'Try not to get in each other's way, don't damage the fixtures, "'and send any offers to me, care of any Kruligan you can catch. "'The owner of this one would appreciate a quick sale, no strings.' "'She flicked a finger at the door, and it swung inwards, "'the loud creaking swallowed by the fog. "'Take as long as you like, and neither the vendor nor I "'are responsible for any injuries, mental or physical, "'you may sustain, etc., etc., including death or undeath, etc., etc. "'Decor, we say two and she walked out of the light, leaving only the tip of her cigarette beckoning through the fog before that, too, was gone. Molly pushed the baby carriage through the open door, the wheels crunching over bits of rotted plasterwork and broken glass. The door was evidently a servant's entrance, and led to a long, functional-looking hall lined with doors and draped in shadows. Clarifester Drove took up position in the middle of the hall, "'examining a softly glowing globe attached to the apparatus on his back. "'He stared up at the ceiling. "'More than I expected. I'll be upstairs. "'You both stay down here for the next hour.' "'He stumped off toward the stairs. "'If you know what's good for you.' Divesta Honeychild harumphed, placed her fingers on her temples, "'and spun on the spot three times. "'One hand snapped away from her head as if burned.' and pointed away down the hall, away from Drove. "'The confluence is strongest when diametric,' she sent a withering glance at Molly. "'You may glimpse etheric fire from my coronic discharge. Do not be alarmed. "'If your kind are even capable of such reactions, it is how I communicate with the manifestata. She walked briskly away and vanished around a corner. Molly looked down at Philip, and, with a twinge of remorse— tugged the bonnet off his head and tucked it away. He looked up at her with a melancholy air. Were people this mad before we died? She shrugged, blood trickling down her chin and pushed him slowly down the hall. There are unquiet spirits here, said Philip, keeping his voice low. I reckon that's what Drove's looking for. More supplies for his spirit cabinet, perhaps. But it's you they're looking for. Be careful, Molly. This place has a lot of hidden faces. And they're all watching you. She could sense the same presence as Philip could, but Molly had more immediate concerns. She was certain she knew this building, but her memory was more full of holes than any one of Seamus' victims. This building had been important once. An idea occurred, and she headed for the public entrance. It took a lot of raking around in the detritus of the main lobby, but she eventually found what she was looking for, the building's faded brass nameplate, Octavius Hall. She stood for a moment, desperately trying to bridge the gaps in her memory. Of course, Octavius Hall. Are you feeling all right, Molly? Philip asked, and she realized she'd been clutching her head and moaning. Octavius Hall. She'd let them down. Feel? she asked, throwing the nameplate back into the pile of junk. I'm feeling angry. She wrestled the pram back through the pile of rubbish and headed for the basement, ignoring the sounds of something watching her from the lobby balcony. 7th of May. Controversial investor seeks stake in Octavius Hall Convalescent Home. Manager refuses to answer questions. By Molly Squidpitch. "'The Malifaux Daily Record has unearthed a series of backroom deals "'by the controversial businessman Mr. Elphinstone Mateague "'that have caused the elderly residents of Octavius Hall "'to fear they may find themselves out on the street this winter. "'Mr. Mateague, who is known for buying up lots "'and forcibly evicting tenants to make way for... "'A white wooden chair sat with its back to the main hall, "'and the pram knocked it on its side as Molly passed. "'Over the crash... A skittering sound could be heard from the floors above. And that was drove. And I don't remember him having that many legs. We're being followed, whispered Philip. And Molly nodded mutely. More and more of the story was coming back to her, and her sense of anger was growing by the minute. The door leading to the basement stairs was just ahead. Eighteenth of May. Octavius Hall not for sale. We'll protect those in our care declare Board of Governors. Public outcry forces Elphinstone Matighe to withdraw. By Molly Squidpidge. Had it not been for the intervention of this newspaper and its crusading lady reporter, Miss Molly Squidpidge, the Malifaux Daily Record believes that dozens of impoverished, sick, and frail elderly men and women with no living relatives would have been evicted. The pram bounced from step to step as Molly steered it down the wide stone stairs. Philip holding on to the bedclothes with gritted teeth to stop himself flying out. At the bottom of the stairs, huge stretches of brickwork and masonry had been removed and piled in the corners. Scaffolding and iron buttresses held up the walls and ceilings, and where the tiled basement should have been, the dirt slope stretched away into darkness. The body of Divesta Honeychild lay like a collapsed doll at the top. twenty ninth of May Octavius Hall closes blames emanations from the sewers. All 41 residents taken to facilities Earthside by Molly Squidpitch. One of Malafaux's most well-regarded public services has been forced to close. Overnight, the 41 elderly residents of Octavius Hall have been decanted from their beds and rushed to Malafaux Station, and from there to convalescent homes Earthside for their own well-being and protection from noxious vapors arising from the sewers according to a statement issued by the Board of Governors. Suggestions of unauthorized underground works were dismissed as malicious speculation. Expressions of regret were issued by many of Malifaux's public citizens on learning of the closure, including Molly propped Philip up to get a better look and bent to examine Miss Honeychild's corpse. It looked like she had burned from within. Her fog coat was charred and smoking, and the smell of scorched flesh filled the air. Her face was frozen in a rixus of horror, and a small flame was slowly consuming the tightly wound bun atop her head. There was no other sign of fire in the room. Molly blew on the flame and put it out. Make a wish, suggested Philip. Molly closed the woman's eyes. Being careless and self-deluded in malafoe was rarely a recipe for long life, and she had clearly encountered something that cared little for her chronic discharge. Molly picked her way down the earthen ramp and into the darkness. This wasn't the sewers. The air was old and dry as the dust in her mouth. What had they been doing here? You're just going to leave me, Philip shouted after her in an anguished voice. I can't defend myself. I'm ahead. His last few words dropped almost to a whisper. Presumably as he realized that being all alone... "'Shouting might not be such a good idea. "'Molly's undead eyes could see fairly well in the almost total blackness, "'although the glow from the gorgon's tear around her neck "'helped pick out the steep passage and low ceilings. "'Tools and equipment lay everywhere, "'covered in dust and abandoned in a hurry. "'Reaching into a pocket, "'she lifted out Mrs. Choke and tucked her behind her ear, "'making sure she got a good view. "'She hadn't known Mrs. Choke before she'd died, of course.' "'But everyone liked exploring, didn't they? "'The passage ended where a sunken stone wall had been broken through. "'Molly stepped through the breach. "'Inside was a chamber, the walls lined with rusted iron plate, "'and the floor covered in shattered glass and scraps of machinery, "'buried under rust and verdigris. Plinths of stone and brass stood at regular intervals, "'and from the jagged spears set into the rims of each one, "'it was clear these were the source of the broken glass.' There was only one left intact, an enormous bell jar big enough to hold two men lying on its side next to a large pile of filthy canvas sacks. Molly knelt beside them, her hands feeling the contours within. Skulls, bony bodies, stick-thin limbs, long dead. She counted forty-one sacks.
0: Deadline after this community warning from the guild. Seriously, this th- this isn't a wind-up, really? Okay, fine, fine, I just thought April Fool's Day was several weeks ago. Reports are coming in of uh, missing... <sighs> mm, teddy bears. Yes, you heard that right, folks. Not multi-armed, horned, slate-ridge maulers. Small, stuffed, adorable children's teddy bears. I'd advise you just taking your children by the hand and having a good hard look around your home, but this is of, um, somewhat of a a crime wave, so it seems. Children falling asleep with the toy in their arms, having it snatched from themselves in the middle of the night, and waking up to find their arms empty. The children are undoubtedly distressed, and their adults are starting to get annoyed, a bored-looking guild official said. We would advise parents to ask their youngsters if they are sure they have looked everywhere before reporting a missing toy as an incident. Just one thing links these... happenings together. Being the children's rooms feeling colder for some time afterwards and thin strands of webs laced over the floor. Anyway, from one obvious work of fiction to something that actually happened, here is the rest of Deadline.
1: 30th of May. Molly Squidpidge murdered. Guild blame so-called Mad Hatter shameless. Condolences from civic leaders, page 3. Obituary, page 4. By Gideon Trump, editor. This newspaper is aware how greatly saddened its readers will be to hear of the untimely and tragic death of one of our most fearless and crusading reporters, Miss Molly Squidpidge. No Rest Home Earthside had any record of receiving forty-one patrons from Octavius Hall when it closed, and so she died while in the middle of one of her biggest stories. In Malafoe, that was no longer the handicap for a reporter it had once been. She had let them down, and she could feel the ghostly presences all around her. She had let them down, but now she'd come back. A skittering sound made her turn and she felt rather than heard Mrs. Choke scream and faint dead away. The exit was blocked. For a moment she thought the scrap on the floor had assembled itself while her back had been turned, but it still lay among the broken glass. What she was looking at was the intact version of whatever the scrap had once been. Four legs gripped the broken masonry of the breach with steel claws, the stone fracturing under the pressure. Two segmented arms, held as if in prayer, aimed twin hypodermic needles the size of small harpoons at her. Between the many limbs, a head of ancient leather and brass rivets nestled amid an array of hydraulic pipes, its softly glowing eyes matching the green venom dripping from the needles. It settled back on its haunches, ready to spring. Molly froze, and then smiled. Here, boy. Here, boy, she said, holding out her hand. The machine paused its head moving in jerking motions, as if searching the air. Then it bounded forward, scattering the detritus on the floor and curled its antique, rusting body against Molly's legs and dress. She reached down and stroked its head, feeling the dry leather brittle to the touch. She scratched behind its pipes where they met in brass couplings faded green-gray with age, and the machine's hydraulic systems flicked on and off in pleasure. "'Good boy,' she said. She bent down and rubbed its flaking metal body with both hands, and it rolled onto its back. Good boy! She could feel an energy coursing through this machine, that fizzed and sparked wherever she touched it, resonating with something deep within her. Molly closed her eyes, and the machine stilled. The energies within them flowed as one. And Molly looked through eyes that had seen a thousand years pass and more. Centuries of service to the necrotic power that animated them both. Ending in this very room, not abandoned, but stored, waiting. Preserved in the huge glass specimen jars with its pack brothers. Brief images of momentary consciousness flickered past. A fractured kinetoscope of the years that followed as, one by one, the ravages of time destroyed the other jars, and their contents slowly rotted away. And then, men came. Picks and axes breaching the walls the last jar being tipped on its side, escape, confusion, screaming, running and hiding in the far reaches of the building, slowly regaining its power from the spirits of the dead who roamed the dark passages of Octavius Hall. Molly's sight returned to the near pitch of the sunken room, and the necrotic machine wriggled again at her caress. She glanced at the bodies in sacks. Those were not this machine's doing, although this machine was surely the reason the building had been abandoned in such a hurry. Who, then, had killed the residents of the hall? She had a feeling she knew exactly who. Molly stood and headed for the ramp, the machine settling in at her heel. Philip was going to be thrilled. Drove was waiting for her at the top. Philip could only moan a warning, his mouth stuffed with cloth, as Drove raised a wide-bore pistol and blasted searing lightning at the machine by her side. It was lifted off the dirt and slammed into the iron scaffolding. It lay curled and smoking, bits of its casing glowing red hot like embers in the dark. "'What in the world was that?' Drove demanded, turning his lightning gun toward Molly, but still staring at the twitching remains of the necrotic machine. Molly didn't answer. She glanced back once and continued walking slowly toward him. Drove smiled cruelly and adjusted a dial on his pistol. "'The wine from his backpack increased a whole octave. "'Your master has no idea what he did when he made you, does he? "'Or when he gave you that.' "'The scorched barrel of the pistol jabbed at the Gorgon's tear around her neck. "'I couldn't let that stupid woman live after she'd seen me here with you. "'Word might have got back to Seamus, "'and I really don't want that maniac knowing my name. "'The mamselle won't tell. "'As long as she gets her commission, she minds her own business.' and she's not afraid of Seamus. So you and that remarkable Soulstone are going to come with me, and I'll show the world what Clarifester Drove and his spirit cabinet are really capable of. He aimed the pistol at her face. That's far enough. Molly glanced a warning at Philip, and he screwed his eyes shut. With a smile, she lifted the Gorgon's tear off her breast, and, with a whisper and a burst of green light from the tear— that the unfortunate clarifester drove see what truly lay within. He'd been on his knees, lips frothing and body shaking, for a whole minute before he was even able to start screaming, and Molly waited patiently for him to stop. She took the cloth out of Philip's mouth, set him upright again, and brushed his hair flat, while drove raved and howled and sobbed behind her. When the screaming turned to whimpers, and then to dry heaves of his chest, Molly went to him and clasped his tear-streaked face to her bosom. She retrieved Mrs. Choke from behind her ear, severed some of drove's electrical cables, and tied them to the former landlady's wriggling optic nerve. "'Well, Mrs. Choke,' Philip said, grinning ear to ear, "'if you're feeling at all aggrieved at the way your life has recently turned out, "'you may feel the need to express some of that dissatisfaction "'in what I hope will be a cathartic experience for you.'" "'In short,' I bet you could murder someone right about now, eh, Mrs. Choke? The eyeball twitched angrily in Molly's hand, stretching to get free of her grasp. Molly imagined her being similarly infuriated at a guest not using a coaster or putting his feet up on the furniture. Not a girl, Mrs. Choke, Philip crowed. We've got a live one here, Molly. Molly let go, and the undead eyeball dropped with a sickening plop into Drove's gaping mouth trailing the wires. His hands flew to his throat, as his face turned red and he gasped for air. Then his eyes bulged as he made a very surprise-sounding swallowing noise. He grabbed at the electrical cables protruding from his mouth, but just a moment too late, as Molly flipped the power switch on his backpack and stepped back. The whine of power was satisfyingly full throttle, and Philip whooped as flames shot from drove's mouth and ears and his clothes caught fire. The sound of sizzling body fat filled the room. A smoke rolled upwards in great clouds, and then the intestinal gases in Drove's voluminous belly ignited. His midriff exploded with a wet, ripping pop, and Molly, in one deft move that raised a cheer from Philip, caught a hurtling Mrs. Choke in one hand. Drove's corpse collapsed in a reeking ruin, and Molly turned back to the necrotic machine. So what exactly is that thing? Philip asked. It was a simple matter now. The connection had been made. "'for Molly to reach out with a fraction of the energy within her "'and pour strength into the dying machine. "'Its limbs ceased twitching, "'and it sprang upright a moment later "'before bounding over to Molly and racing round and round her. "'Molly thought back to hazy memories of when she had been a child, "'and her father had produced a gleeful, scampering bundle of legs "'and soft hair with a very wet nose "'and bright, bright eyes from behind a glittering Christmas tree. ponto she replied. The little girl Kruligan came out of the fog when she called, and led her by back alleys and zigzag lanes to the Mamselle. "'I thought I might be seeing you again,' the woman said as Molly approached, pushing Philip in the baby carriage, which he was now growing rather fond of, and had requested Molly add certain personal touches, such as lanterns and a supply of cigars once they returned to the old brewery, with the machine pacing at her heels. Mamzelle Vestige was leaning with effortless ease, "'against what appeared to be an upright but dead-drunk guild guard officer "'watching an illegal bare-knuckle fighting contest in the cobbled yard below. "'Shouts, bets, oaths, and meaty thunks floated up from the pale ghosts "'exchanging blows in the gathered crowd. "'Who owns Octavius Hall?' Molly demanded, "'dark blood spilling from her mouth as she spoke. "'Perhaps you, Monsherie, if you can meet the asking price,' "'the mamselle turned back to the fight. Our money's on the redhead.' "'Caledonians are so fiery-tempered, Nipah.' "'That, and I have poisoned his opponent,' she gave a gallic shrug of indifference. "'I will ask you only once.' "'Don't let us quarrel, Miss Squid Pitch. "'A ring of smoke disappeared into the fog. "'Neither of us would profit. "'I seek to make only friends in this town, "'and what would my reputation be if I gave away the identity of a client? "'Then I will pay the asking price.' Lamselle Vestige gave Molly her full attention, but only in person. Vestige regarded her for a few moments between drawers on her cigarette. And what would my business be if I lost a client? Molly produced a drawstring silk bag and placed it on the parapet between them. The presence of the soulstone within was unmistakable. That should cover your commission, Philip said, and a little bit extra to make sure he comes along. A smile spread across the mamzelle's face like ice across a winter pond, and Molly wondered if she really was as young as she looked. A pleasure doing business with you, Miss Squidpidge. I will arrange the rendezvous. Octavius Hall, I presume. Molly wheeled Philip away, the voices of forty-one ghosts whispering in her ears. Tomorrow at midnight. I have a deadline. He did not, of course, arrive alone. Unscrupulous, black-hearted businessmen were rarely so stupid. Molly had known who it would be. She had suspected long before she died, and the memories had come flooding back since the previous night. And there he stood, tall and stooped with a silver cane, a slick of receding white hair, a black suit and the air of a miser whose only problem was that everyone else had too much money. The cellar of Octavius Hall, Elphinstone Matigue. It could only have been him. He had brought three bodyguards and a lawyer with him, all with weapons and lanterns. No matter. Murtighe never saw what hit him. He was standing in the echoing lobby of Octavius Hall, facing the wrong way when Molly wound up her arm and hurled Philip out of the darkness. tally He struck Murtighe in the back of the head with a sound like two barrels banging together, and the tall man crumpled without a word. Right in the coconut, Molly, booted Philip as he bounced off, and then let out a string of curses when his cigar went the other way. The lawyer took one look at Philip's flying death mask and ran, screaming. As the bodyguards thick-set men on hire from the miners and steamfitters' union, with faces like bruised meat milled around in confusion, the necrotic machine dropped from the chandelier above. The hypodermic syringes flashed and stabbed, snickety-snack, and it was all over before Philip had stopped rolling. The whispering voices of the dead surged. Molly grasped Mateague's tongue in a vice-like grip and began to drag him toward the basement. Mateague awoke in complete darkness. He was lying on something hard and lumpy. His head and mouth were in agony, and he could feel rough cloth. It took only a moment to realize that the cloth was a hessian sack and that he was inside it, and then Elphinstone Mateague began to thrash and yell. The sack was closed tight around him, and terror threatened to rob him of his wits, but after a moment he found the neck and forced a thin arm through with a hoarse cry. He heaved and the rope slipped loose. Matigue tumbled out, kicking and cursing the darkness until he lay breathless and exhausted, his head throbbing in pain. "'Thank you for joining us, Mr. Matigue,' Philip said as Molly struck a match and lit one of the bodyguard's lanterns. She gave Matigue a moment to take in his surroundings.' Molly sat on a white chair before the breach in the wall of the underground chamber, Philip on a plinth to one side, and Ponto squatting on the other. Mrs. Choke looked on stoically from a vantage point high in Molly's bouffant hair. Molly held a notebook in one hand and a pen in the other. She had no need for them, but it felt good to hold them again. Elphinstone Matighe himself lay on a pile of forty-one hessian sacks. It had taken Molly all the previous day but she and the necrotic machine had made certain changes to the soul gin Seamus was working on. Empty bottles lay scattered around the iron-walled room, and the effects of their contents on the remains of the forty-one inhabitants of Octavius Hall were just starting to be felt. Matig froze as the lumpen shapes beneath him shifted. Ah! he cried as he scrambled to his feet, but the sacks were now all in motion beneath him, and he fell cursing. "'We're on the record, Mr. Matigue,' said Philip. mind your language now.' Matigue rolled to the side, kicking legs and flapping arms until he slid off the pile of sacks onto the debris-strewn floor. He crawled away through the rusted metal and glass and cowered against the far wall, clutching his chest and wheezing. "'Just want to get the facts down, Mr. Matigue,' said Philip. "'Won't take long.' "'Now, would it be fair to say you purchased the hold in secret?' lied to the Malifaux Daily Record, and indeed everyone else about it, and then killed the elderly paupers living here so you could dig around beneath the hall for ancient relics and profit without anyone knowing. Saints preserve us, Matigue moaned, as the mass of filthy sacks thrashed like a hive of brown maggots and began to writhe and wriggle across the floor towards him. I would take that as a yes, Molly, Philip said out of the corner of his mouth. And would it be fair to say that you broke into this chamber, awoke my colleague's many-legged friend, and abandoned the dig in the hall in terror, making up some story about emanations from the sewers and sealing Octavius Hall shut for the last year? Help me, Mati gasped, his hand white-knuckled over his chest, all color gone from his pinched face. The sacks were like a tide of giant vermin now, lurching and twisting their way through the debris in silence. "'threatening to swarm him at any moment. "'A grey hand made of bones covered in the most paper-thin of rotted skin "'burst from one of the sacks and gripped his ankle. "'He flattened himself against the wall and screamed. "'Another yes, I would say, Molly,' advised Philip. "'Would you like us to rescue you, Mr. Matigue? "'Yes, you're safe from these upset former customers of yours. "'The press is always willing to protect its sources.' Matigue's mouth worked open and shut a few times, but when he couldn't get any sound out, he started nodding as vigorously as he could. At a silent command from Molly, the necrotic machine sprang forward, reaching Matigue in a single bound. It carried a letter in one hand and a pen in the other. Sign that, if you would, Philip called. More hands burst from the rotting sacks, grabbing Matigue's feet and legs, and he snatched the pen and scribbled his signature, a low moan of terror escaping his bloodless lips. The machine retrieved the letter and picked up Matigue effortlessly. The hands grasping him released their hold. Molly rose, crossed the room, and joined the machine next to the plinth at the far end. The necrotic machine sat the trembling Matigue on the plinth, then stabbed one of its needles into his chest. He screamed, as pale green liquid flowed out of the reservoir and into his body. "'No! Wait! What!' he cried, and then Molly lifted the last remaining intact bell jar, taking all her undead strength to do so, and brought it down around him, cutting his pleas off. The rim sank into the groove running around the plinth with a grinding noise, and Molly twisted it to lock it into place. Inside, Matig banged his fists feebly on the thick glass, but all Molly could hear was a faint drumming as if from far away. She picked up Philip and left the room, turning back for one last look. Matigue knelt awkwardly, hammering his fists against the confining glass walls of his prison. The concoction in his veins would not kill him. Instead, it had imbued him with some of the necrotic machine's undead essence. It would keep him alive in that jar, even once the air had been exhausted for centuries. She turned off the lantern, and utter darkness fell. Seal it up, Molly said to her faithful machine. Bring the roof down behind us. As she walked up the steep slope, Ponto tore the metal scaffolding and supports from the dirt walls. Planks of rough wood crashed down, followed by multitudes of black earth that chased their heels all the way back to the basement and up the steps. When they reached the street outside, Molly realized she could no longer hear the voices in her head. Octavius Hall was finally silent. Back to Seamus? Philip asked as Molly settled him once again in the now rather dirty bedding of the pram. The one working gas lamp in the street spluttered fitfully. Molly folded the letter Matique had signed, and another sheet of paper into an envelope with the word Editor on the outside. She would drop that into the night box at the Malifaux Daily Record on the way back to the old brewery. Won't Seamus be, to put it mildly, a little annoyed that he took so much of his precious soul gin, Philip wondered aloud. Molly gave her own gallic shrug of indifference, and found that it agreed with her. James had probably gotten bored with his brewing anyway, and set off on some other wild pursuit. She lit Philip's cigar using one of the matches she'd taken from the bodyguard, and placed it in his mouth. There was a sizzling sound. "'The other way around, Molly, if you please.' Molly flipped the cigar over and put it back in, patting Philip in apology. "'Here, boy,' she called, and Ponto bounded out of the fog into the light of the gas lamp, pressing up against her. She rubbed the manifolds on the back of its head, and it quivered in pleasure. "'You know, Molly, old dear,' said Philip around the cigar. "'I don't reckon that one is a boy. Just a feeling.' Molly thought a moment, and realized Philip was probably right. She tore a strip off the pram's hood and bent to the machine. When she straightened up, with a pleased expression on her face, the leather and brass head of her faithful companion sported a pink ribbon with a bow on top. It bounded happily away. She got the pram under way, the wooden wheels slipping on the wet cobbles, and with Philip puffing contentedly, they walked off into the fog together. 3rd of October. Exclusive. Elphinstone Matigue signs murder confession. But his whereabouts are unknown, by Gideon Trump, editor, and Molly Squidpidge, deceased. In news that has shocked Malifaux society, the Malifaux Daily Record has uncovered a grisly tale of deception and murder.
0: How unfortunate, how unfortunate indeed. It seems like a pair of accidents, both are currently being treated as unrelated, have struck the city during that last part of our story today. If it wasn't for the utter carnage of it all, wouldn't it be astounding what the human mind can accomplish over the course of 15 minutes or so? The previously mentioned Dockmast One has undergone further refurbishments Several hundred tons of brass, steel and air cars have converged into the building at the same time. I do not believe this was the type of decor they were looking for. This must be a mistake. Also in the news, a guild warehouse in the quarantine zone has been ransacked. Guild officials are keeping the stolen contents of the building hush at the moment, but insiders believe military technology of some sort has been stolen. All fingers are currently pointing at rogue arcanists being behind the theft. If you know anything about either incident, I appeal to you to come forward. Exploding rail cars, stolen goods, and. Uh, missing children's toys. Malafou, Bad things happen.